Pastors Larry and Tiz Huck welcome you to another Larry Huck Ministries podcast. We pray this teaching will fill you with God's wisdom, anointing, and revelation knowledge. Thank you for your prayers and faithful support. I could go on and on about the rabbi's accomplishments, but really I would like to say he has meant so much to New Beginnings and to our family personally. I thank you, Rabbi. He's been with us through lots of challenges, and the Hucks and New Beginnings will always be there for Rabbi Lappin. I want you to give Rabbi Lappin a warm Texas welcome. I love you. God bless you, sir. Can I sit down, folks? Come on. Can I start off wishing a happy birthday to my dear friend and to your blessed and inspired leader, Pastor Larry Huck. Let's give him a nice happy birthday, shall we? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear. Happy birthday to you. Um, So our language is a little inaccurate because we tend to say that tomorrow is his birthday, but it isn't. It's the anniversary of his birthday. And, and so when I think of a birthday, do you know what a birthday is? Pastor Larry's birthday was the day that God decided the world cannot go on without him. And God prepared him and brought him into the world for a time like this. When his leadership is so urgently needed. So I pray that God should give him good health together with his dear wife, Tiz. And I'd like to say God should give him courage, but that blessing has already been fulfilled. And so that should continue. Uh, Pastor Larry, I I miss you, but uh, we love you and very, very happy to to be here with all your many, many friends and family. And uh, one of the things that that unifies us all, I think, is a serious um, affinity for what we call traditional values. And we we very often fail to contemplate what what defines traditional values, but it's the sort of thing, like we all know what that means, right? Traditional values, we get that. But what is it actually? And so I'd like to share with you a definition of tradition so as that uh, you'll have it available in your pocket for whenever you need it. And the definition of tradition is that which prevents problems from afflicting society. 
And here's the second part of it. If you forget tradition, the problems come roaring back to punish us. And what are some of these traditional values? Well, it's pretty easy to to know. Here's one of them. Shocking idea. Um, It's important to work. Really important to work. What does the fourth commandment say? It doesn't say you shall keep the Sabbath. It doesn't say keep the seventh day, the Lord's day. It doesn't say that. Do you know what it does say? Six days you must work. And then the seventh, you shall rest. And so if somebody's retired and plays golf seven days a week, he's not observing the Sabbath. You've got to be working. That's a traditional value. Shocking notion for many people, but it's real. Another traditional value, a man and a woman should get married. That's a traditional value. Not good for man to be alone, says chapter 2 of Genesis. And God brings Eve into existence. And we have there the blueprint of what a traditional marriage looks like. Raise children. Do you know right now, in terms of the general insanity of the culture, do you know that young women, 19, 20, 21, 22, are having permanent surgery to never be able to have children? This is happening in America. What sort of monster with a doctor's diploma would perform such an operation? When anybody with an ounce of sense in his head knows that in 10 or 15 years, that woman is likely to have terrible and profound regrets. But that is the level of hatred for that traditional value of having children. It's a bizarre thing. Here's a weird idea. Male and female, he created them. And therefore, since traditional values are nothing more than a laying out of the rules that God gave humanity, not surprisingly, the culture does everything it can to obliterate the differences between male and female. It does that simply because the Bible says male and female he created. Well, we'll undo that. Absolutely. Biblical values lay the foundation for a durable human society. And that's one of the reasons that the people of Israel are literally the only group that has survived as a coherent group on this planet for more than a few hundred years. Wherever you look, whether it was the Roman Empire or the Russian or the French or the Italian or the Babylonian or the British Empires run for about two or three hundred years. That's it. And then they leave off the stage of world history and another empire begins to start up. The Hebrews have persisted.
Now, many people will say that China is a very ancient culture, and it is an ancient people, but it's not an ancient culture. And the reason is because there have been many dynasties, and every dynasty has been a remaking of the entire culture. This is one of the reasons that the Chinese alphabet is almost impenetrable for foreigners, because every dynasty came up with a new alphabet which got overlaid on the old one and the next one on after that. And so today, just the sheer intelligence needed by a little Chinese kid learning Mandarin uh, takes some doing. But it's all different dynasties, one after the other. But this is the only group of people where you can take a little urchin on the streets of Jerusalem and show him the words written by Jeremiah the prophet 3,000 years ago, and he'll read it for you. English of 400 years ago, the time of William Shakespeare, is almost unreadable for most people today. 800 years ago, it's called Old English. You can't read it. It's another language. But Hebrew has stayed the same all the way along. Why? Because it's a people that, to a greater or lesser extent, has followed the traditions of the Bible. And when a man marries a woman and they raise a family and they stay married and they care for those children, then you end up with stable children. But when you don't follow that rule, and it seems to make so much sense, does it not? Why should we be bound by traditional values? Why should we let the Bible dictate how we live? There's no reason to be married. It's just a piece of paper. I don't need anyone to tell me we love each other. And the result is that those children are born and grow up without fathers in their lives. Now, if anybody tells you that, uh, well, a mother by herself can do just as well as a married couple of parents. And I'm not saying that single moms do not do heroic and valiant things. I get that. But I'll tell you one simple fact. And please show me whether you agree or you disagree. If you disagree, I'll show you another fact. But a good one to start with is that young male predators do not fear a young girl's mother. They only fear a young girl's father. I'll take amen to mean you agree. So it's important to get that. Because young girls who grow up without a dad are in terrible danger. Because... Young guys who are predatory only fear her father. And when she doesn't have a father, she is fair prey. That's a huge problem. But if you follow tradition, that problem isn't present. If everybody works and people do not go into debt because they follow a biblical approach to money and to finance, then you end up with a country that does not have inflationary problems. You know, you all hear about supply chain problems, supply chain problems. Of course we have supply chain problems. Because of COVID, don't be naive. COVID simply provides cover 
for the politicians who created this problem. COVID has become one of the greatest excuses for underperformance in America. Supply chain problems, I'll say, you know, when, when you move the production of every needed commodity to China, well, how long do you think it's going to take before there's a supply chain problem? You know, if everything from baby's powder to machine tools is made in one country on the other side of the world, you've got a problem. And many other similar problems. Look, what the Bible does rather beautifully is depict the passage of events in 40-year segments. 40 years from slavery to freedom, Israelites crossing the desert. Many of the kings of Israel ruled for 40 year slices of time. Uh, Moses uh, was, uh, was 40 years old, and then we're told he was 80 years old, and then he died at 120, three 40-year periods in his life. And so I want to just take a quick glimpse at two slices of 40-year periods in American life. I'm not going to go back to the 1800s. Uh, you know, let's, let's stay much more recent than that. Let me look at 1903 to 1943. Let's look at those 40 years. Anyone know why I choose 1903? What significant technological event happened in 1903? Yeah, airplane. December 1903, Orville Wright, on the beach in North Carolina, flew an airplane powered by a gasoline engine for the first time in human history. You know how long the flight was, how, how far it covered? 121 feet. <laughs> that flight could comfortably have taken place inside this house of God. <laughs> Forty years later, that's all, 1943, we had the world's first four-engined, fully pressurized, high-altitude bomber, called the B-29. We made a thousand of those, and they were being used effectively by the Air Force all the way through the Korean War. That's how well they were built. Remember that during World War II, in spite of their technical prowess, Nazi Germany never succeeded in building a four-engine strategic bomber. They never had a machine like that. Do you know what an accomplishment it was? From 1903, 40 years later, that's all. And we go from 121 feet, first flight, to the B-29. Do you know what the wingspan of the B-29 is? It's 140 feet. So Orville Wright's very first flight could have happened on the wings of a B-29. And they're, in 1943, they're being built at the rate of four a day. What that takes. How many people do you think were working on the B-29 project to churn them out at four a day? Not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. 
It wasn't just Boeing. It was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of subcontractors and sub-subcontractors and the genius of all kinds of brilliant designers to bring all the pieces together at the right place at the right time that off the assembly line slides a ready-to-fly B-29 and then six hours later another one comes off. Think what that means. Only 40 years after the very first airplane. But it's even more astounding. Ten years after 1903 was 1913, World War I. Now, in World War I, they were already using airplanes as fighter planes. Ten years after the first flight on a beach in North Carolina, they're in the airs over Germany firing machine guns. But wait a moment, there's a problem. Anybody know what the problem is if you try and shoot down another plane with a side-firing machine gun? Well, it doesn't work for the same reason that if you throw a ball into the air, you're traveling on a train, you know, train moving along 60 miles an hour, throw a ball in the air, how come it falls back in your hand? It should be behind you, you know, because you're being whisked away 60 miles an hour away from that ball. What's the answer? The answer is that although you can't see it from in the, in, the, in the train, when you throw that ball up in the air, it's not going straight up. It's going with the same speed as the train. And it's describing a parabola. So anybody, if you were traveling in a glass train, somebody on the platform outside sees you throwing up a ball, they'll see the ball doing that. Not this. And similarly, if you fire a machine gun out of the side of an airplane, the bullets don't go straight. They, they move like that in the same... It's almost impossible to hit anything. And so the only thing to do is to fire the machine gun off the front of the plane. And that's why in all these World War I and World War II air movies, you'll see the, the fighter pilot is flying straight at his target, firing away, and then he peels off. Why? Because it's the only way to do it. But there's one big problem with trying to shoot a machine gun forwards from the cockpit of a fighter. What is that? It's called the propeller. And propellers in World War I were made of wood. Now, wood is no match for a 50 caliber machine gun round. So how long do you think propellers lasted? Seconds, and they were shredded. So 10 years after the first flight... We had already perfected here in the United States of America a synchronization device that made machine guns fire bullets between the blades of a rapidly rotating prop. This is genius. And we win World War I. And then comes World War II and the B-29 is instrumental in winning World War II. And during that same 40-year period, we built in the state of Washington a beautiful, amazing dam called the Grand Coulee Dam on the Columbia River. It's a sight to behold to this day. And then in Nevada, we built Lake, the Hoover Dam for Lake Mead. That's what made the whole development of that part of Nevada possible, damming up the, um, um, the Colorado River and... Water was available. That was also during that 40-year period. The San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge, 40-year period. Um, the George Washington Bridge from Manhattan to New Jersey across the Great Hudson River. The Empire State Building and countless other record-breaking skyscrapers. This was quite a 40-year period we were living in. 
1903 to 1943. What a time for America. And now I ask you to think of 1980 to 2020. Any dams? No, we've demolished a few to save a little creature that lives in the waters of the San Francisco Bay. And so now California is like a third world country. They have a water shortage. And yet enough snow melts off the western slopes of the Sierra Mountains to provide all the water needs for the United States of America. But it flows wastefully into the Pacific because they won't build dams. In 1903, back to the first 40-year period, would you like to know what the illegitimacy rate was? What percentage of American babies were born into an unmarried household? The stats actually show 0% because it was so low it doesn't even register. And when it did happen, as it often did happen, uh, they got married very quickly. And so... The percentage of children who grew up without a dad was effectively zero in 1903. By 1943, it had climbed precipitously into the teens. In 1980, it was 22 percent. It's now 2020, 40 years later, 41 percent of American babies are born who will not know their fathers. And half of those are girls. That's the difference between that 40-year period and this 40-year period. Just one more statistic. I don't mean to bore you to death here, but uh, one more uh, figure that's important talking because financial ruin is a product of moral ruin. Please understand this. Please understand That if two people, two men or two women, have exactly the same, I know this is not practically possible, but imagine the same statistics, same age, same experience, same work history, same earning history. Why is it that one of them will have a net worth of a million dollars and another one will end up in debt? What's changed? What's different? One spends and one saves. And the difference between people who spend and those who save is spiritual Do you have the moral strength to not do what feels good, but to do what your head tells you is good? That's a spiritual matter. Finances are inseparable from spiritual realities. And so it's important to note that during that entire 40-year period from 1903 to 1943, that the national debt as a proportion of the gross domestic product of the United States. In other words, you know, how much of our financial creativity as a nation has to go to the debt? And during that entire period, including World War I and World War II, that percentage never went much above 10%. If it ever got to 50%, that means that half of the money you make goes on debt. Just think about your own household. Imagine if you had to pay half your monthly income on credit card debt. You'll never get ahead. You're doomed. How about if it goes to 75%? If your debt becomes 75% of your income, it's hopeless. Anybody know what the ratio of America's national debt to GDP was for 2020? 
112%. More than all our economic creativity. Why? And there's one very big difference between 1903 to 1943 and 1980 to 2020. My friends, the difference is that back in that first 40-year period I'm discussing, America was unified around traditional values. Nobody argued. Everybody accepted. We didn't all obey. We didn't all follow it, but we all knew what was right. Reverend Doherty was a great American pastor of a church in Washington, D.C., And during the early in the Eisenhower administration, he gave a phenomenal sermon, which had an enormous impact on me. And in that sermon, he said, our pledge of allegiance is indistinguishable from that of Soviet Russia. Our pledge of allegiance must include the words under God. President Eisenhower heard that sermon and turned it into law. Do you think there were protests in the streets do you think there were riots do you think there was looting to stop this religious indoctrination no because people know that the definition of tradition is something that prevents problems could you imagine today a president trying to put the words under god into anything we've had presidents who surreptitiously remove the word god from proclamations that contain them in the first place This is what's happening. It's all different. Enlightenment has started meaning something quite different. We always understood what enlightenment meant. In fact, even the word enlightenment came from the first chapter of Genesis. I'm sure you all know. In the six days of creation, day number one was when God created light. Now, in Hebrew tradition and in ancient Jewish wisdom, we count a great deal. I think it's one of the reasons that Jews make good accountants. <laughs> and um, we, we, we emphasize counting. Numbers are really, really important. So much so, by the way, that uh, I, I always tell people, before you invest in a company, read their annual report. And the, before you even read it, the first thing you have to see is, are there more words or more numbers? If there are a lot of pages devoted to the story of the company, run for your life. All you got to do is give me the numbers. I'll tell you the story. I don't need you giving me the story. Tell me the numbers. I'm going to be good. That's all. So we count numbers a lot of the time. And so light is, is created by God in the first day of creation. How many times does the word light used there? Does anybody know? No peeking. Five times. In in spite of the fact that in ordinary human literature, we use prepositions. And God created light and saw it was good. And he took it and he did this with it. It's cumbersome in English to say, and God created the light and God saw the light was good. And God took the light and did the... But it's important because the number of uses of the word light has to be five times. And then we go on to the creation of water. How many times is water used? You won't be shocked to hear exactly five times. 
Why? Because numbers are important. We know what numbers mean. What do you think one always means in ancient Jewish wisdom? Anybody serious about the Bible knows one always means? Him. That's why we call it monotheism. One means him. Do you know what two stands for? Two tablets of the law. Do you know how many times the words Ten Commandments appears in the five books of Moses? Three times. Do you know how many times the words two tablets appears in the Ten Commandments? 32 times. So obviously the fact that they were written on two tablets is much more important than the fact that there are ten of them. And not for today, but on one of my audio programs, I teach the linkage between the two tablets, why there had to be two tablets. And so it goes, three, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Four, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Five, who knows what five stands for? Five books of Moses. Five always stands for God's wisdom. Now you might catch why we had to have light show up five times in the first day of creation and why water had to show up five times. Who knows what happens when you put light and water together? You get something called a? A rainbow. Exactly. And the rainbow was God's promise after the flood. And the promise is, hey, you guys just have to follow the light and become enlightened. And what does water always stand for? What do people that I thirst for? Wisdom, right? And what does light stand for? I see the light. Or being enlightened. Or why comic books always show above a character that has a brilliant idea. What do they show? A light bulb, of course. Exactly. Because five is enlightenment. Five is the rainbow that's light and, and water. And both light and water stand for wisdom. And that's why it's because they show up five times in the beginning of Genesis. You still do need a rabbi, right? Okay, good. I'm just. I like to stay employed if at all possible. <laughs> but at any rate, there's, there's so much of this material, and obviously it's not the, the theme of what I can keep ourselves on in, in the short time we have available together today. That's exactly why Pastor said we've brought material, and um, I'll be happy to talk about it and explain it uh, off the clock um, a little bit later on. But this is all important stuff we have to, we have to really um, get and understand. And, um, and, and a part of it is the idea of connecting. Because this is a big problem. Today, we've got a divided culture in America. We've got a culture that believes that traditional values are obstructions to progress. They get mad at me because I say God created us male and female. That's all there is to it. And so uh, I don't like the idea of males going into women's bathrooms. 
And I don't like the idea of men competing in women's bicycle races or women. Because God made us man and woman, male and female, equal but not identical. Both needed. Tradition prevents problems. And there is a part of this country that is so committed to a deep, implacable hatred of the Bible that they will hate the traditional values that flow from the Bible and they'll be willing to deal with the problems. And then there are those of us in this house of God and thank the Lord in thousands of other houses like this around the country And we're over on the other side. We believe that the only hope for us being able to live together in a functioning society is the preservation of traditional values. A preservation of the values that prevent problems. But you know what? In the middle, there's still a whole lot of people undecided. And we have to win them over. We have to join them. And I'm going to tell you one way of doing that. It's a way that Susan and I have practiced for more than 40 years, as Pastor said. And, um, and I'm going to share it with you because it's an immensely powerful tool. Our entire ministry was created on this technique. Ancient Jewish wisdom shows how from the Hebrew words in the Bible, we can derive that Abraham and Sarah, when they started their ministry, which was the beginning of what we're doing here, right? Abraham and Sarah started their ministry. They built it into a ministry of 20,000 people. Now, this is, by the way, in a day when the largest cities in the world had 100,000 people. There was a great pastor in America called George Whitfield. He used to speak to 20,000 people, and he never had one of these. And so way back, Abraham and Sarah built a ministry of 20,000 souls. And that was the beginning of everything. That's why we're here. And the techniques they used are the techniques that Susan and I have used, and they are techniques that I want to introduce and share with you. And in order to do that... I have to explain something. Um, what I'd love to do is, is have a slide up, if we possibly could. Uh, I'd go with a slide number three, if that's possible. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, you'll see uh, that's the letter Vav. It's the sixth letter of the alphabet, and it means the word and. Now, one of the amazing things about the Lord's language is that the letters' shapes are related to their meaning. And I want you to notice that the vav actually looks like a hook. If you took that shape made in metal and you hammered it into the wall, you could hang a teacup from it by the handle. Or if you put one at the back of one railway carriage and you put another one at the front of another railway carriage, you could hook the two railway carriages together. This is the connecting letter, and so you won't be shocked to hear that it means and. And now I want to show you the first few verses of the book of Genesis. Let's go to slide number four. And here it is. Thank you. By the way, thanks a lot. Uh, you can, no, uh, 
I, I didn't have to open my mouth and, and, and say, you, you guys are such a great crowd. Um, so have a look. The very first letter, remember we read right to left in the Lord's language, okay? Uh, the very first letter is the letter bet that the reading of that first line is in the beginning Breshit bara elokim et in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth now uh, in i have a very very important online learning program called scrolling through scripture that program which by the way for all of you folks today is um, available at a at a terrific price um, we want, we want you to have it. In scrolling through scripture, I spend, I believe, an hour and a half on those seven words and 28 letters on the first verse. And I'm talking quickly. An hour and a half on that. Now, um, and, and there are a lot of important things. I mean, you might notice that the third letter, did you see that third letter? That's called an aleph. Do you notice that if we go to the third letter of the next word, it's the same letter. Then if we go to the next word, it's the first letter. And then the next word, you see a little two-letter word? The first letter is the same as the first letter just before it. And then we go to the last two words, and you'll see the second letter is that same thing. What's that all about? Coincidence? No, because there is no word for coincidence in the Lord's language. It doesn't exist. A coincidence is just the way God conceals what he's doing. And you have to dig for it. And when a word doesn't exist in the Hebrew language, trust me. No, don't trust me. Trust him. It doesn't work. Retirement. No word like that in the Hebrew language. It's unhealthy, folks. Tradition says work, and tradition prevents problems. Tradition prevents problems. So words that don't exist, coincidence doesn't exist. And so we have to know about, again, uh, I can't take an hour and a half on that now as much as I'd love to, but the good news is it's on our program, Scrolling Through Scripture. You got it. But what I want to point out right now is that Back when I was at school, and I'm sure many of you as well, you might have actually learned something called the English language and English grammar. Uh, again, that's an old-fashioned notion. But um, you may have been told, do not start sentences with the word. Yeah, because yeah, a sentence is one concise, coherent thought. If you start a, word, a sentence with the word and, it means that it's not a separate thought. It's connected to the one before it. Now... You will agree with me, and you'll, you know how to tell me you agree with me. You agree with me that the very first verse of the Bible cannot start with and. Because there is nothing before. That's the beginning. A. All right. Call me needy. Okay. So, um, but look at the next verse after that. And. And, 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 and I didn't have space on that slide, but I could have gone all the way to 34 verses into the book of Genesis. And they all start with the word and. 35th verse is a new topic. And what does the 34th verse finish? The entire first story of creation. 
Now, of course, there's also a second story of creation, and we have to understand why God has to tell it to us twice. I'll give you a clue. Spiritual, physical. And so you'll see that in the first story of creation, man and woman, their separateness is not that different from the separateness between lions and lionesses. Biological, basic. But the difference between male and female in the second story of creation in chapter 2 is huge. All of a sudden, man goes to sleep and a woman gets hours and hours of instruction on that as well. In scrolling through. I want you to know about this stuff, please. Our, our, uh, God's instruction manual... This is not a simple little book. It's not a, a story book. I think it's fine for children in Sunday school to, to know the stories. But we're adults. We need to know, particularly in these perilous times, what God directs. And we have to understand why. And then we'll understand that tradition is not just an old-fashioned way of doing things. Tradition prevents problems. And when you forget the tradition, the problems come thundering back to punish us. And so that first account, all the way through, and, 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 and. And there's something being taught to us here, very, very important. And that is that um, when God says it's not good for man to be alone, that is a general statement. He wants us connected with each other. And God gave us two very beautiful and pleasurable ways of connecting with one another. One of them is through sex. It's called marriage. That is a way for a man and a woman who have probably known each other for six months to make a pledge and a commitment to one another to walk through life hand in hand and to build a marvelous thing called a family. And a family is a place where we cherish children. We do not kill them. But that's all laid out very clearly over there. There's a second way that God gives us to connect with one another, which is non-sexual, but is also very delightful. And that's called making money. You want to know how you make money? It's very simple. You figure out a way to serve God's other's children. That's all. That's all you've got to do. Say, so if somebody says to me, um, I took four years of gender studies at college and I can't get a job. Yeah, because none of us actually care. There is nowhere on ZipRecruiter that it says looking for somebody with a master's degree in gender studies. We're actually looking for somebody who knows how to frame a house with a hammer and a bunch of nails and a bunch of two-by-fours. That's what we're looking for. You know what we're looking for? We're looking for somebody who can fix the plumbing. We're looking for somebody who knows what electricity is. We're looking for somebody who can program a computer. That's what we're looking for. And all of this laid out beautifully in God's instruction manual. Find something that other people need you to do and learn to love doing it. 
people who reject tradition go about it the other way. I'll do what I want to do, and then I'm going to look for people who want to pay me for doing it. Not going to happen, idiot. Not going to happen. That's not how God created this world. He wants his children to care for one another. And money is just evidence that you have cared for another one of God's children. It's all about connection. And God gives us such a clear message. Connecting is fun if you do it right. It's good. You can get money. You can get a family. Because think about it, right? The only reason that you will be able to have a Thanksgiving meal with your cousins is because many years ago, grandpa and grandma's eyes met and they got married and found joy in one another's arms. That's why you have a family. And in the beginning of Genesis, God lays it all down. I'm a good and loving God, he says. Not only do I give you the instructions to be able to live productively without problems, I actually make it pleasurable and delightful. Not hard. Connection, it's crucial to his message to us. Let's have a look at um, the next slide, if you don't mind. Slide number three. And um, slide number three, um, let's, let's keep going. Uh, you know what? I'm so sorry. You are right. I made a mistake. Slide number two is what I'm actually looking for. Yeah, there we go. Okay, why is this up? Because I want you to notice that the word the appears a number of times. The word nature appears in slightly different form, nature and natures, and then the word separate or separation. I'm going to count those as three words, even though they appear more than once. In other words, discrete appearances of a word is what we're counting. And so there is the orange word, and I don't care how many times it shows up, and there is the purple word, and there's the pink word, and so on and so forth. Why do I tell you this? Because I've told you that in scrolling through Scripture... The entire unit is based on the first 34 verses, because the first 34 verses, it's chapter 1 all the way through to verse 31, and then um, chapter 2, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. And that ends the session. Now, the uh, uh, Bishop Stephen Langton, who in the 13th century gave the chapters, he gave us something very useful to sort of find our way around, but they're not holy. In other words, they're not part of God's depiction. God's depiction is based on specific graphical indicators in the text. And one of the things, I mean, there's one Bible I recommend because it has English on one side and Hebrew on the other. And you can actually see, you can start recognizing those Hebrew words and you can start seeing the graphical breaks in the structure. You'll see it's a beautiful, beautiful Bible. I, I, I study with it myself, and when I teach, I give page numbers from that Bible. And what's going on here? Well, in that depiction of the first story of the entire creation, this is from Bereshit, from the very beginning, there's nothing. And then at the end of those 34 verses, there's everything. Everything is there. France is there. 
amazingly enough. Las Colinas is there. Everything is there. Maybe not in its final form, but everything to make it is there. And ancient Jewish wisdom says, count the discrete words in the first 34 verses of the creation. And um, the answer is 92 words. God uses only 92 words to show the creation of everything. Well, to me that's fascinating because, and here get ready to be blown out of your seats, because how many basic elements did God build into the world? What I mean by basic elements are things you will find on what's known as the periodic table. And the periodic table of elements starts with number one, which is hydrogen, and then it goes to helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine, all the way through to the final one, which is uranium. Any idea what number that is? Come on. I'm making this easy. It's number 92, of course. Now, if you look on a modern periodic table, there'll also be additional elements after that. They are not naturally occurring. You you won't find them there. But um, what happens is in a lab, you can artificially synthesize, and usually they last for about a thousandth of a second. They're of no practical significance. But in other words, what we know today is that if you got a big paint box with 92 little boxes and into the one you put a whole bunch of hydrogen atoms and a whole lot of helium atoms in number two and a whole lot of lithium in number three and all the way forth till you come to a whole bunch of uranium atoms in block number 92 and now you use a tweezers, you can make anything. You feel like some sugar for your coffee? No problem. Take eight carbons, take 16 hydrogens, take a bunch of oxygens, shake them up, sugar. You want salt with your french fries? No problem. All you've got to do is take a little sodium, take one of chlorine, shake them up, you got salt. You want wood, you want plastic, you want aluminum. All you need are these 92 basic elements. Because we've got 92 discrete words in the entire story. In other words... God is telling us, look, don't think that this book is not relevant to busy modern people. This is the blueprint of everything. And so you've got to be able to relate to this idea that God gives us all these 92 elements, but it's a little bit better than that. It gets better. You know what it is? Iron is one of the elements. Anybody used any iron lately? What did you eat with? What utensils? What were the utensils made out of? In my case, plastic. Um, (laughs) But uh, when we're being fancy, the utensils are not made out of iron. Because iron actually is, it's not that great, you know. Firstly, it's brittle and it's rigid. It breaks easily. Number two, it rusts, which is a real downer with eating your mashed potatoes. And um, so what do we do? Oh, it's no problem. We take a bunch of iron. We take a, a little bit of carbon. We take some nickel and, um, and we take some cadmium, shake them all up together, and we get something called stainless steel. 
And now my Colt Python 357 made of stainless steel lasts forever. It's great. You don't have to worry. When God says not good for man to be alone, that's true about man, but it's also true about objects and things. He created a world of 92 elements where in order to really thrive, we have to learn to mix and join. The air we breathe is not oxygen. It's only about 20% oxygen. There's all kinds of other things like nitrogen in there as well. If you give people pure oxygen, it's a sign they're sick. Air is a mixture. You like wood, you like fabric, wool, nylon, all mixtures of only these 92 elements. Everything joins. You see how this works? God created a world that ultimately moves towards unity. Everything joins. How do we bring people to unity? Well, let's see what Abraham did. In Genesis, there's this wonderful account where Abraham is sitting in his tent. And along come three travelers. He put his tent at the crossroads. And he made openings on each side. He had a pretty big tent. It was a mansion tent. And um, he put doors on every side. And uh, people are traveling all the time. And what did he say to them? Please come on in. Sit down so I can preach at you. I do a thundering sermon. Come sit down. I'm going to preach. Is that what Abraham said? If you say yes, you need remedial Bible. (laughs) Now, you know, what did Abraham really say? Come sit down and have a meal with me. And he called back to his kitchen staff and the chefs and he said, prepare. And he gave a menu what he wanted prepared. And the people sat down. Now he didn't know they were angels. He did this for everybody who came by. And then during the meal, they talk as people talk over a meal. And they say to Abraham, you know, what's your thing? And he said, oh, my thing is him. Who? Him. What? You don't know who he is? No, never heard of him. Who are you talking about? God? You're kidding, really? Folks, when people are eating your food, they're open to your ideas. And that is why at a business lunch, we business professionals fight over the check. Because I want you to eat my food because I want you to be open to my vision of the deal. And so Abraham brought people into his house not to preach to them, but to provide them with fundamental needs. I paid attention to what pastor said before I came on. I heard that you helped homeless people. You prayed with them. You, you were working with them in terms of the real needs of life. That's what counts. Then you teach about God once those are met. That's what Abraham and Sarah did. That's how they built the biggest ministry in the world of its day. And that's how we can unify.
Because when we try and unify, we are going with God's plan for unification. Not good for man to be alone. That doesn't just mean Adam and Eve. That means each and every one of us, our lives are made richer by the fact that we are here. And I'm sure, I'm not going to do this now, we don't have time, but I'm sure you already know the people you're sitting next to or the people behind you or the people in front of you. And if you don't, you will soon. All of this enriches our lives and makes us more successful. It is much easier to stay firm to a commitment to do the right thing, to follow my head, not my heart, to avoid doing destructive and unwholesome thing. Much easier when I have friends in my life. Because I feel I don't want to let them down. It's not just me. If it was just me, who cares? So you owe a huge debt of gratitude to your fellow members of the church family. And you owe it to yourself and to them to get to know them and to be part of their lives. And how about the next church down the road is also filled with believers and people who know that the Bible provides a system of tradition that prevents problems. And we have to know them. So I'm going to just give you, I'm going to give you one little tip. Uh, it's one that served Susan and me very well. And, uh, and this could actually open an exciting new season uh, in your lives if it, if it works for your family to do this. What you need to do is buy a beautiful, big, old, used dining room table. Get rid of that little plastic card table you've been using. (laughs) Well, you say, well, you know, you don't eat at home so much. There's lots of good restaurants around here. Yeah, that's the whole point. Invite people, just as Abraham and Sarah did, invite people to eat with you. Is that amen? Good. Now, the good news is you can get wonderful deals on used dining room tables because nobody uses them anymore. (laughs) No, it's serious. I mean, you'll find the the trend in architecture and home development today is small dining rooms, small kitchens. First of all, it's small families. Secondly, people eat out. And people who won't necessarily be interested if you invite them to a Bible study session and may not be interested if you invite them to a prayer session, but if you invite them to have dinner with you, it's a different world. And I describe all of this in terms of understanding what's happened to America in a book called America's Real War. And I I want you to know about this because this book lays out, and I I have a very treasured collection of fan mail uh, from people whose vision of reality was reshaped by my book, America's Real War. It's an inexpensive book, but it's very worth having, and I'll tell you why. Because it explains what this war is really all about. Why is the last 40 years so painfully and so tragically different from 40 years that spanned 1903 to uh, 1943? And the difference is the clash in America today. We were one nation. Today when I hear a politician say, the American people want... What we want you to do is shut up. 
You don't know what you're talking about. There is no American people anymore. There are two nations, one under God and one anti-God. I wish I could talk to you about the unity of our people. No, there's unity among our crowd and there's a closeness I feel with each and every one of you and you feel with one another. And that's something that Pastor Huck has brought about. But don't for a moment think that the folks on the other side feel any less united. They feel just as united. All you had to do was watch them rampaging through the streets of American cities last summer. And you saw they, they were like an army, unified. They all knew what they were trying to do and they did it. Nobody stood around saying, hey, what are we supposed to do now? No, they knew what they were supposed to do. Destroy America is what they were supposed to do. The problem is, obviously, that there is no connection between that America and this America. But there's a whole lot of people in the middle who vacillate. And I lost a whole lot of those people by a terrible mistake. A number of years ago, uh, I was on a TV show. And one of the things that Reverend Doherty said in his great sermon about under God, he said that people who do not sustain live by and protect traditional biblical values of parasites. It's absolutely true. They are. They are people who are living in a beautiful country with buses that work and roads that for the most part are not broken and sewer systems that work because that was all built by people who subscribe to those values in one way or another, consciously or subconsciously. But people who spend Monday and Tuesday rampaging through the streets and lighting stores on fire don't for a moment think they spend Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday hard at work on a factory assembly line. They don't. And so it's true. People who don't subscribe, participate, sustain, and protect traditional values are enjoying the benefits while doing nothing at all for... They are parasites, but I made the terrible mistake of saying that on television. And at that point, I lost the entire audience. I also let myself in for several months of vitriolic and tremendously hostile, sometimes even very profoundly disturbing, attacks. Because I struck home at the truth. And what did I achieve through that? Nothing. I persuaded nobody. And I mention this not uh, because I enjoy recounting one of my worst moments, but because it's so important to speak with invitation, not intimidation. Got to welcome people, share our food, share our conversation. And then at this point, For many people in the middle in America, the choice is becoming vividly clear. It's a world in which children are raised outside of families. It's children migrate into unwholesome worlds. 
Um, the, uh, an executive of McDonald's was also cancelled and vilified because he criticised the fact that a parent took a five-year-old or a seven-year-old at 1 a.m. in the morning into a drug war zone. The kid got shot. This isn't a crime problem. This is a parenting problem. What sort of father does that? Very often, and the New York Times started this idea many years ago, many times that man is not the father of the child. He's the boyfriend of the mother of the child. And the New York Times introduced the idea of calling them fathers and families. But everybody knows this is, uh, you don't have to be religious to know, that the most dangerous place in America for a child to be is in a house with mom and her boyfriend. Because to that man, that kid is nothing but a handicap. These are the things that happen when you forget tradition. The problems come roaring back and punish us. And so people out there are aware of the choice they have. The choice is that world, a world in which traditional values have been obliterated, and this world where there is a hopeful future. And there is an openness to our message today. It's funny, right? It's like, you know your rabbi singing onward Christian soldiers here. But, uh, uh, but in a way, I, I am. I'm saying you have enormous potential to influence people. But do it with invitation, not intimidation. Do it, do it over a meal. They'll be open to your ideas when they eat your food. And you will get to love that dining room table of yours, I'm telling you. And so... My friends, I, um, I wish we had more time together, but I'm, I'm grateful you have been so kind to let me share with you for as long as I did. And uh, because you will want to delve more deeply into some of the things that I've touched on, you need to speak to Susan or me outside, and you need to take a look at scrolling through Scripture. That's 10 hours, it's 20 different lessons on the first 34 verses of Scripture. We've spoken a little bit about that. And uh, we also have a special holiday book gift package with the holidays coming up. And you'll be able to see what that is. Um, we also have a few copies of my Bible, which I love and which I, you, I know Pastor has one. And you'll, um, you'll take a good look at that out there and see what you think of it. And um, America's Real War. It's a picture of what's really happening behind the scenes, understanding what it is that's really going on. And uh, that means that we are about as far as I can possibly go with you on this particular occasion. I'm so grateful that we're approaching normality again, that I'm able to be back here at New Beginnings. And um, to see the church family that you all have built 
and with all the people who are not here but watching at home, it's such a thrill for me, and I feel so blessed and uplifted to be able to see all of you here and to know of your dedication to your pastors and leaders, and above all, your dedication to God and to his word, the Bible. I thank you so much. Um, maybe, uh, uh, just um, if you give us the uh, slide that has the address and, and details like that, that would be good. That'll be terrific. Would you give Rabbi, stand to your feet and give Rabbi one more clap offering. Let him know you love him. Thank you so much, Rabbi.